You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Coming to you from Podcast Detroit, it's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Heard is a collaboration between the Hungry Dudes, Nick Drinks, and the Detroit Optimist Society. Each week, we interview industry professionals about issues related to food, beverage, and hospitality. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd through the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, SoundCloud, or however you subscribe to your podcasts. Write a review and let us know what you think. For additional content, including awesome videos and photos, visit HerdPodcast.com, like Herd Podcast on Facebook, and follow at Herd Podcast on Instagram. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoy this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. I'm Joe Hakeem, and tonight I'm joined by Jason. Hey. And our very special guest, the owner of Shram's Mead in Ferndale, Ken Shram. Hi, Ken. Hi. How's it going? Terrific. Great. So, uh, well, you just Ooh, popped a is. bottle. I made the move. Uh, so, uh, Ken brought, brought some mead with him, obviously. I'm super excited. Um, so what, what's the first bottle that you uh, popped open here? Uh, the, the first bottle I brought uh, is Heritage. Okay. It is it is a raspberry mead. Heritage is a variety of raspberries. It's one I've been growing uh, myself for probably close to 30 years now. Uh, and, and and I got these – I got not these Heritage raspberries, but I got the, red, the Heritage raspberries that I have in, in my orchard. Uh, from my grandfather, who uh, grew them in Mount Clemens for decades while uh-huh. I was a kid, and uh, th- they were they are a part of my my upbringing. They're seared into my into my culinary being. Yeah, um, one of those one of those uh, formative uh, taste and smell memories uh, was was eating these raspberries with with whole fat milk. And sugar on them as a kid sitting on the on the back porch of my my grandparent my grandparents home the front porch of my grandparents home as well yeah. uh, and and uh, it's it's uh, as pleasant a memory as I have yeah so uh, what is mead exactly uh, mead is the fermented beverage that's made from honey uh-huh. um, beer is from barley um, cider is from apples. Uh, wine is from grapes, and mead is the is the beverage that's created by mixing honey and water and fruit juices or whatever else you'd like to add and fermenting it. But the 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 mead portion of it comes from the fact that most of the primary or most of the fermentable sugars, excuse me, uh, come from honey. Honey. And so, w- when you add fruit or when you add, say, apples or something, you you change the the category of mead so there's like melamel and piment and there there are there are um, some of those some of those categories are a little bit obscure okay. <laughs> I, I i think they're they're um probably more fun for people who really like multi-syllabic words okay. <laughs> uh, um but yeah i mean they're called melamel and hippogress and and piment and methylin and just a whole bunch of other terms um i think they're to some extent a little bit confusing um and, and and certainly to a large part, extent, I'm confused. At AF, yeah, they're they're hard to remember. <laughs> so so for our purpose, our purposes, for example, uh, our 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 bottle here of Heritage says uh, Heritage Raspberry Mead. <laughs> it's it's a raspberry mead, and in in uh, this is the the uh, the next 
uh, mead we'll get to is a smile of fortune and that's uh, a, a mead made with a number of different fruits but we look to we like to think of our fruit meads as fruit meads we like to think of our spiced meads as spiced meads um it's it's really easy to remember and and it, it really describes exactly what's going on there uh-huh so why mead why mead um well, I was part of the home brewing revolution thing in uh, in the 1980s. The American Home Brewers Association and the the group of people who kind of became the craft beer revolution were were getting started and messing around with making their own beer. And and uh, in in the back of the first book that I got to make my own beer and that I got for Christmas in 1987, uh, there was uh, an appendix on how to make mead. And Charlie Papazian, who who was the the founder of pretty much the whole thing, uh, Charlie Papazian started the American Homebrewers Association, wrote the book called The Complete Joy of Homebrewing that was kind of the Bible of, of homebrewing and got hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people into the, into the hobby. Um, he wrote this book and he, in, in the back was a, an appendix on how to make meat and the terms that he used were just incredible. So just superlatives. This is the best thing since, um, Noah <laughs> and, uh, and probably even before Noah. Uh, and, uh, when, when I read that, I thought this is, this is, you know, I got to try this. Um, and it, the, for my first few batches weren't spectacular. They weren't even as good as my first few beers. My first, first few beers were pretty good, but I knew that this, this beverage had a lot of potential and it also had a tremendous amount of flexibility to it. Um, you can do anything with it. You can add spices, you can add fruits, you can add vegetables, you can add, uh, you can add grains. You can kind of make a blend between uh, a beer and a mead. And it's called a, that's called a braggot. Um, and you can, you can do just about, you can go, you can go from completely light and dry to big and thick and dry to big and thick and sweet. So you can, you can cover the entire gamut of possible flavor and, and, and alcohol and aftertaste combinations that you can possibly do. Um, and I, I got started with it and then, and then. I mean, when I got it, all it seemed like everything was happening in slow motion at the time, and I look back on it now, and in the course of like like five months, I went from never having brewed a beer to basically starting to brew just about every week, <laughs> and I and I joined the American Homebrewers Association, and I um, got when as soon as I joined the American Homebrewers Association, I got a copy of Zymer G Magazine, and then the first copy of Zymer G Magazine I got, there was uh there was an an article in there about the first five people who ever attained national status as national beer judges. You know, there's, there's different categories that you can attain there. You, you know, you start off as a, as a, uh, basic or what known as certified. And yep. then, and then, uh, you go through a, the, the various levels and the, you know the, the the highest level that anyone had ever attained at that point was national now there's masters and grandmasters and whatnot but the first five nationals were being you know announced to, to the world in this in this article and one of them was from Wyandotte <laughs> his name was wow. Bill Pfeiffer and he owned a homebrew shop in Wyandotte and 
So I called him up. Huh? <laughs> I was living in I was living in Taylor at the time. I called the guy up and he said, "Yeah, come on over, bring some beers." <laughs> wow. he, was, he was as kind as he could be. He was just an absolute sweetheart. He he was the head of the of the adult ed department in Taylor Public Schools, and he was also owned this the shop and was deeply involved in in homebrewing. <laughs> knew knew all of the players. Everyone knew him. He was involved in the formation of the beer judge certification program. And, and Ooh, that was, was going to be one of my questions later on. Yeah. I always try to understand like the regulations and who, sure. you know, uh, that was just for beer though, right? Um, it, now there is a mead judge certification okay. as well. Yeah. You can, you can take a test that in fact I help write, <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, so, so wait I a second. Pfeiffer, I met Pfeiffer and he was, he had been a former mead maker of the year best mead maker in the country in 1985, I believe it was. And, and he, he said, you know, I can help you make better mead. <laughs> and he did. It, it, is mead a beer or a wine or is it neither? It's neither. Okay. I mean, it's, it's pe- people like to call mead honey wine. It's a way to think about mead, but really, I mean, um, beer isn't, beer isn't barley wine. It's beer and right. wine, wine isn't great beer. <laughs> right. Um, so the term honey wine is kind of just a term of convenience. Really mead is mead and it's, it's kind of always been that way. Um, and, and it's always, it's also been the case that people have used other things besides honey in their meads going back way into, you know, pre, pre, you know, what, uh, Paleolithic, uh, or at least early Neolithic time periods. So, at, at what point did you realize that you were pretty good at this? I'm still not all that good at this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I I make meads that I like, uh-huh. um, and and really that was that was my that was the point at which I thought. But you mean you okay. wrote the guideline to judge the mead? Well, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that, but but I also I also knew. Uh, when I started making meads, that the first few meads that I made, I didn't really love. And then the first time that I made a mead that I really loved, and I gave to my friends, and they really loved, um, that was when I knew I, I this could this could be something. Um, I, we we started. I mean. Uh, I hate to just like go back into the time machine here, but uh, go for if it. I go if I go back to uh, 1991, right? I I had met Pfeiffer. We joined together. Pfeiffer and I joined the Ann Arbor Brewers Guild, which is a a bunch of really incredibly talented, incredibly smart people from Ann Arbor. Uh, it's it's a bunch of profs and lawyers and engineers who are into brewing, and it's an Ann Arbor uh, phenomenon. They're 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 all really smart. Some of the people that I met there were just some of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and, and so that, that group helped me learn an awful lot and we were all really enthusiastic. And in 1991, we had, we had been making meads and by then I think I'd made a couple that I really liked, uh, about three years into the thing. And, uh, some of my friends and I said, we really, we really want to know how good this stuff is. We can taste what's going on in Ann Arbor, but if we start a competition, we can taste what's going on 
from the whole country and maybe even, you know, wider than, than that, maybe Canada and Europe and people will you know, send stuff to us. So we did, we started the first meat only competition that I know of in the United States. It was called the Mazer Cup and uh, it still is called the Mazer Cup. It's being run in, in Denver now, but in 1992, we got that underway and we tasted a whole lot of really good meads. Um, and we also, we also got the recipes for them. Um, not that I've, not that I'm making anyone else's meads right now, but it helped me to learn what the, the best people in the country, like Byron Birch and, and, uh, Robert Keim from Cornell university were doing, you know, how are they, how are they crafting their meads? How are they fermenting them? How are they, what nutrients were they using to, to make them better? So that, that was, that was really important. Um, and, and as we, as we kept going, uh, we just, uh, Dan McConnell became my, my mead making buddy. And, uh, Dan is a, a professor of microbiology at U of M PhD, uh, with a PhD in chemistry, biochem, I think. And, uh, he's just, he's, he's a research, uh, microbiologist at U of M. Um, and, and, uh, we, we got way in over our heads, <laughs> so to speak, as soon as you know, I, I kept bouncing my ideas off him he kept bounces bouncing his ideas off me we kept getting information from the, now the annual Mazer cup 1994 we did a we did a big experiment because we wanted to know um we wanted to know how different yeasts impacted the flavors of mead and we also wanted to know how different varietal honeys Im impacted the flavor of meads so we got six different honeys and fermented them and, and created meads with the exact same recipe, the exact same amount of honey and water, and, and then pitched the same yeast on, on all six of those, took the remnants of that, the, blended those six honeys together, made another mead with the six different honeys together, and then we took clover honey and fermented it with six different yeasts so that we could find out what the impact of the yeast was on the finished flavors. And, and aromas. And we took that whole thing to the American Homebrewers Conference in Denver in 1994. Um, people were really happy to get that information. It was a really, really uh, formative part of the whole mead hobby was to, was to take that out and get, you know, 80 or 100 of the most lunatic brewers and mead enthusiasts in the country together in a room and say, here – taste this <laughs> and everybody did and they were all happy uh they were all really grateful for the information grateful for the learning uh, we all we all figured out a lot in that process and uh it just kept it just kept spiraling up from there uh, as soon as we got that done they wanted us to write an article so we wrote that article and then they wanted us to write another article and we wrote another article and they wanted us to make more presentations and we did we made I mean, the next present big presentation we did was in was in uh 1995 in in uh new orleans we went to that uh uh conference and took 13 different fruit beers so uh, that was kind of cool, um, all different yeasts and, and different fruits. Uh, and and uh, just things just kept spiraling. We also started the, the uh, Michigan State home fair, Homebrew Competition for the Michigan State Fair. Um, and that, that started up right about the same time that the Mazer Cup did. And we kept 
meeting meeting cool people. We met Peter Stroh and Larry Bell and 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 folks that that have been uh, really uh, ensconced in the Detroit and, and Michigan beer culture for a long time. Uh, we met Tom Burns, who uh, for those who who don't know about Tom Burns, he started the Detroit and Mackinac uh, uh, Brewing Company in in Detroit and was one of the the best brewers I ever met. He made phenomenal beers and he unfortunately died of cancer uh, shortly after he got his brewery up and running, uh, which was really, really sad. Uh, but, but it was, it was still, uh, Tom was one of the people who helped get uh, brew pubs and, and micro, micro breweries legalized in the state of Michigan. He was a, he was a lawyer as well as a brewer. Uh, so we, we met a lot of these really interesting people and just kept you know, kind of expanding our knowledge base and and uh, and doing crazy things. <laughs> so when you got started doing this, I'm kind of reading in between the lines here. Were you brewing the mead, but not you didn't have many other ones to try? So this Mazer Cup was an idea of trying to get yeah. some idea of if you're doing if you're even on the right track. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're you're, you're sorting it out really well, um, and and we. We uh, we learned a lot about um, f- uh, balance of flavors. We learned a lot about um, using local ingredients. How that was happening around various parts of you know around various parts of the country. Uh, and and in Hawaii, we had a guy from from Hawaii send in a, a pineapple beer that was just utterly spectacular. And uh, it was it was uh, you know that all all these things. You know, you can feel the tumblers clicking in, into place as as these lessons keep getting pounded in. That that uh, you know, use use good fruit, use a lot of it, use use local stuff that can be delivered with really high quality. Um, and so that's you know, these are all lessons that just kept getting ingrained in a, in uh, me and my friends. For somebody for somebody that doesn't like myself, who doesn't I guess have a concept of scale, like. What's like a typical size you're getting started out? You're talking about, you know, you, you made a mead, the first one you loved, you gave it to your friends. They're like, how much are you talking about here yeah, in terms was, of like a typical uh, output or right. for a batch or, you mm-hmm. know, when you're working through all those things? Yeah, a lot of home brewers work at the five-gallon batch okay. scale. It's it's a it's a really easy scale to work at. Uh, there's there's plenty of equipment that's been built to, to to work at that level, and you can use you can use the carboys, the the glass water bottles that are part of the you know the the water industry. Um, they they work really well. They're very neutral uh, fermentation or storage vessels. Um, so five gallon batches were were really common. There are people now who work in smaller batches, and there's a lot. There's been a lot that's changed since I was sort of a kid, <laughs> if you will, or at least new new to the the hobby, but lots of five gallon batches. And the nice so thing not about prohibitive five, to experimentation. Right, right. right. I mean, uh, mead is a little more expensive than beer is for, for this kind of stuff. Um, and it, it was, it was good that I got to the point where I was really liking stuff because, you know, when you're out there buying, you know, 12, 15, 20 pounds of raspberries for, for a batch and, and also, you know, 15 or 20 pounds of honey, it, it's not cheap. Um, and you've got time that you're investing in it as well. So, um, it's good that, it's good that they started to, <laughs> started to please me and my friends. Uh, but, but once they did, then it became, it became really expected that 
you know, Shram's going to show up with something cool at the party. Shram's going to, Shram's going to have those, you're going to do those raspberry meats again this year for Christmas presents again. You know, uh, what, what do you do? What are you doing now? And, uh, so I, I, I did. And I, I, you know, it also, it was also a really good, uh, um, incentive motivator for me to get involved in, in growing my own fruit. Because once you, once you're growing your own fruit, now it doesn't cost as much as going to the, you know, Mikelski's berry farm and, and picking 20 pounds of raspberries. So that, that changed a lot of my, my other, in 1994, when I, when I, uh, bought the home I'm living in, in Troy, it had a bunch of fruit trees on it. And, uh, I'm, I'm sure my wife knows now that that's really why we bought that house. <laughs> uh, it, it was a nice house, and it was close to. You know, I was working at the palace at the time, uh, and it was it was a cool place to to be. And Troy is a really, you know, it's an okay place to live too. I mean, it doesn't have a great downtown, but it has some really really good restaurants, and and uh, it's very central to all the things you got to do in the Detroit area. So uh, it was it was a, a good fit, but. Fifteen fruit trees on the property. That was that was like sealed the deal. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was going to talk about these as kind of estate grown meads that because you, you produce estate grown meads, right? That are from your estate, and um, they're pretty highly sought after too, to, to some extent. They are. Um, so you, you have the fifteen fruit trees, but but there's multiple other things that you're growing now besides the fruit on those trees, right? Oh, I'm growing. I'm I. Well, when I bought the place, it had it had five mature apple trees on it, and uh, I learned to graft as a result of the those trees being there. There were that, that was five varieties at the time, and I thought there's got to be a way to have more variety than just this, and so I started looking into how to graft. And sure enough, you can put multiple varieties of apples on one tree, and now I wow. I have I have I'm down to. No, I'm back to five. <laughs> I, I I took I took two out and I put two more in. So I'm I'm still at five trees, but I've got probably fifty five varieties of fruit that are on those trees. Um, just because you can take off a take a take off a limb and graft a new one on there and and have a different variety on, well, on it. So, what does it turn it like? What does that even mean in terms of like growth no, and? It, it doesn't really doesn't mean anything. Okay. Um, it's it's uh, the the the, the the variety that you graft on remains that variety. There can be graft incompatibility between the the scaffold, which is what you know the the, the main tree and its main branches is called the scaffold, um, and and they don't all take or last forever. Some of them take and last a long time. Some of them take initially, and then the graft incompatibility sets in, and that scion will will die. But for the most part, I mean, I've got trees now that have, that, that, that were grafted with new varieties onto them, uh, 15 and 20 years ago. And those are, you know, nearly, nearly the size of a whole tree now. I mean, uh, you, if you can imagine a mature standard apple tree that, that has a, a 12 inch, uh, diameter base, with a number of four and five inch diameter branches on them, and some I've of those I've never heard about that. That's amazing. Some yeah. of those five inch diameter branches are, you know, Newton Pippin or Cox's Orange Pippin or, um, I don't know, just just uh, Roxbury these, Russet. And these aren't necessarily eating apples. These are oh, some of them are. Okay, some of them are. I mean, one of the wonderful things about growing your own fruit or growing fruit that is specifically going to be used 
for making a fermented beverage, for example. You don't have to worry about the same concerns that growers have if they're growing that thing to sell it in a grocery store. If they're growing fruit to sell in a grocery store, it's got to be pretty to start off with. And it's got to stay relatively consumable for a while. So it, it can't it can't bruise easily. It can't have a thin skin. It, it it's got to it's got to have a certain set of characteristics, and those aren't necessarily all crafted around whether it smells and tastes as good as it possibly can. There, a lot of them are are strictly based on visual cues for the cons- the consumer. And um, when you throw that all out and decide that what you're going to focus on is what's really delicious, you end up with <laughs> you end up with a whole different set of fruits. And the great thing about them is you're going to pick them and press them or pick them and, you know, throw them into a, a mead and all you care about is how good it smells and tastes. It's, you're not worried about what anyone thinks it looks like at all. Um, and that's that's a magnificent thing. So what is, in your opinion, what is the best tasting apple? I don't pick among my children. <laughs> um I, 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 and, and that's, that's also based on what you're going to do with it. I mean, a Northern Spy makes a phenomenal pie. So does a Spy Gold. So does, so do a number of other really good apples. So do Wealthies. And, and Wealthies are a little earlier. And there are, there are like early apples like Gravenstein that are, that are delicious at the time. <laughs> at the time, they're perfect because of the first apple you're going to get. It, it, you know, a Chenango strawberry, same thing. It's good for about 45 minutes. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's this, really gorgeous pinkish white skin and thin skin and you can you know if you get them when they're exactly right you can pick them and eat them but other than that they're really only good for for cooking or, or making cider with so um it, i don't have i don't I, mean, I love spy golds i love i love honey crisps I, i'm like yeah i'm like anybody else i love that, that crack of a, of a honey crisp apple yeah. but there are other apples that are really similar to that that are also incredibly delicious so uh, uh, Hubbardston Nunsuch is one that, I mean, and Westfield Seek no further. There's, there's a bunch of apples that are out there that nobody really knows about because they haven't been grown or, or sold commercially for years. There are a few people in like Western Massachusetts where they have these really classic cider orchards where the people, you know, go down and buy them at the, at the local farmer's market, you know, effectively. Um, and they, they know about them and they love them. But there are, there are dozens of varieties that are phenomenal that um, don't see a whole lot of circulation. There's one called knobbed russet, right? And it, it, it looks it looks like, you know, a victim of Chernobyl. Um, it all, it, it actually, what it looks like is like a cross between the, the witch in, in uh, Snow White and an apple. <laughs> and and it, it's knobby and it's the skin is uh, russeted, meaning that it, it's more like a paper bag than it is shiny like a you know, the classic Red Delicious that we're all so familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of yellowish, frequently has, has, uh, um, all kinds of, you know, blotches on it that, that aren't really, that, that aren't related to anything wrong with the apple. That's just that, you know, it's got some, some blotchiness to it. Right. But they're, it's really delightfully acidic and fantastic. Um, it's, it's a, it's a great, out of hand eater, if you don't mind the texture of putting this <laughs> this knobby thing in your mouth. Colville Blanc is fantastic. If you've never had that, Colville Blanc de Iber. Uh, it's a French apple that has as much uh, vitamin C in it as an orange. 
Wow. And, and it's, it's really tart, makes phenomenal pies. There, there are, there are just, just dozens of great varieties out there that aren't common to the American public. And what other fruit are you growing on, on the estate? I, I grow, I grow peaches. Uh, I, I grow, I grow one variety, uh, called Reliance that's, named because it will will bear after really cold years and then i've got a red haven which is just the classic michigan peach and they're super delicious and especially if you let them ripen on the tree then they're then they're just classically you know sort of platonically peach um i i also grow uh tart cherries uh i grow a variety called charbake which is from belgium and uh it's it's probably the best tart cherry that I know of. Um, if you're familiar with the Belgian Creek beers, that's where that's where it uh, gained its fame. Uh-huh. And that variety is is at the core of uh, the one of the varieties you talked about, uh, or one of the, the meads you talked about, called the Statement Reserve. Uh, the statement is made the, the regular statement, not the reserve. The regular statement is made with uh, Balaton cherries from up in Traverse City. The statement reserve is made with Charbakes, and the difference is pretty striking. <clears throat> the nose on this raspberry heritage is phenomenal. I can't stop yeah. smelling it. Yeah, I, I think Thank one you. of the um, one of the things so to good. note about this, the way this tastes, is that it's not super sweet. And, and meat is one of those things where, you know, it's taken as this very sweet beverage. If you just use honey, honey has honey does not have the, the level of acidity that you would even find in traditional white or red wines. Right? A, a mead fermented to dryness like a, like a Sauvignon Blanc or a Chardonnay. Um will not have the same level of acidity. It will not have the same level of complexity. Um, honey has at its core, uh, and this is dependent on the varietal, meaning where the where the uh, bees collected the nectar, but most honeys have in the vicinity of 140 flavor and aroma compounds. They do, and people have done gas and uh, gas chromatography and mass spectrometry on these things, and you can parse out exactly what's there, right? And they've done the same thing with beers, and they end up with you know four or five hundred, and then they've done the same thing with wines, and they end up with eight hundred to twelve hundred. So <clears throat> the uh, the the amount of complexity in wines is greater. Than, than it is in, in honeys. And the same thing is true then if you if you leave it sweet, there's a reduced amount of acidity and a lot of sweetness. And it doesn't really, you know, that's where, you know, you hear people say, oh, this is cloying. Well, that's what, that's what that really means. Cloying means sweetness in the absence of balancing factors. The balancing factor for this meat is, is acidity. And, um, I mean, if I can get a little technical for a second. Yes. Well, um, for a for a for a true food geek, um, the amount of <clears throat> acidity in a typical white or red wine usually ranges from six to eight grams of a, of acid per liter, and in really really acidic white wines, uh, most of the really acidic wines are white. Things like Riesling and Gewürztraminer that can get up to ten to eleven. Uh, grams per liter. The we we had these we had these raspberries tested, uh, and we tested some some heritage, 
And uh, the heritage in my yard comes in at 21 grams of acidity wow. per, per liter. <laughs> and that's – so that's pretty much twice what you're going to get in the most acidic Riesling that you can find. And the most acidic Riesling that you can find is almost always finished with some sweetness because without it, that acidity becomes offensive. Well, if you if you ferment these these raspberries and honey together <clears throat> to complete dryness, it would be screeching. <clears throat> it would just be, and it, I have done this, and it's just not pleasant at all. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so what we do is we we leave some residual sweetness, and we balance the massive amount of acidity that's there with a little bit of sweetness. And you you know your your perception of it is that this isn't really all that sweet. Well, there's there's a lot of sugar that's left in this mead. But because there is so much acid in this mead, it comes across as being pleasant. There's there's just about as much sugar in this mead as there is in raspberries when they're ripe. Wow. So so that's and and raspberries when they're ripe are pleasant. That the amount of sugar in the fruit and the amount of acid in the fruit come across. I mean, it's designed. The the fruit I say is designed. It's evolved. It it, it has reached where it is. In in uh, in the world of growing things, to present to somebody, whether that's a bird or a squirrel or a human, a, a really pleasing balance of of acidity and sugar, so that you will eat that thing, and then <laughs> you will poop its seeds out with a good dose of fertilizer. <laughs> that's the whole goal of fruit. That is the goal of fruit. Eat me and poop my seeds out somewhere where they can grow, <laughs> and that's why that's why. Uh, you know, I mean, some some things. You know, the uh, grapes have low levels of acidity comparatively with things like blackberries and and tart cherries and and even things like green apples. Um, you can ferment them to you can ferment grapes to dryness and they'll be attractive. You can't really do the same thing with with uh, red raspberries or black black raspberries or even worse. And we did the same thing with the tart cherries. The Balatons came in at roughly 20 uh, grams of acidity per liter as well. So, the, the, you know, it's really high. You have to leave uh, sugar to, to balance that. So where did this sense that um, mead is sweet, is that based off of the – are there widely commercially available meads that people have tasted that aren't very good that color their perception? Sure. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, and there are some there are some meads that are out there that are being produced uh, from a from a significantly commercial philosophy and perspective. Now somebody somebody decided we're going to make a mead and we're going to get X honey and <clears throat> ferment it with X yeast and toss it out there and for the world to enjoy. Um, and I I've tasted a lot of those and and to be honest with you, traditional meads unless they're made from Utterly spectacular honeys are not my favorite style. I, I really, I really think that in order to make something that's got a compelling flavor and aroma uh, balance, you you have to you have to go ahead and uh, and pair complementary flavors, complementary aromas, and and a strong base of acidity with the honey. So yeah, I think a lot of people. I mean, it's it's okay. I think it's, it's okay for there to be bad mead. There's bad everything. 
right? There's bad whiskey. There's bad craft whiskey. There's bad craft beer. Um, there's there's bad industrial wine. There's bad commercial. You know, there's bad. Uh, uh, there's plenty of rot gut whiskey out there. In the in the world of beverage alcohol, there's a spectrum from you know, industrially produced, not very well thought out, to you know, really kind of sewer stuff where people you can tell people are concentrating really hard on the on the on the product and and thinking about and being deliberate about what they want to accomplish with it. Are there are there barrel aged meads? Sure, sure there are, and we haven't we haven't really gotten started with that as Shrams. We're five years old, um, I, and I I don't want to sound like we're we're copping out, but that's nothing. I mean, in the world of in the world of really good. Uh, beverage alcohol five year being five years old is nothing so we haven't had the time to experiment with barrel aging stuff we're, we're working on making sure we can get making a really good mead down and do it consistently i'd like to be able to do that for 10 or 15 years and you know that's and that's you know that's 15 years worth of cycles especially with things that we can only make once a year um 15 cycles is not that many passes at something to get good at it. 15 at bats is nothing. Right? You're, yeah. you're in a tiger's cap. Yeah. I mean, you don't expect to get good in 15 at bats. And in some things in, in mead making, you only get one crack per year. So when, we, when we've got it to the point where <clears throat> it's coming out exactly like we want it or really close to like we want it every time, then we'll think about whether or not we want to work to, to barrel aging or, or whatnot else. I'm, we, we we may get started at that a little bit earlier. There are some things we can do more than once a year, and we may take a shot at, at barrel aging a few things. And we have put a few things in in uh, in bourbon barrels when that seemed like a really uh, logical thing to do. Uh, our ginger meat's gone into bourbon barrels, and we've done a couple of done a couple of uh, uh, batches of statement in, a, in, in barrels as well, but. Um, we haven't we haven't launched into a full fledged barrel program where we compared different you know limousine and Vosges oak and American oak and Hungarian oak and how you know how are you going to really pick out exactly what you want to do? It's also it's also hard for uh, an organization of our size. It's it's okay if you're <clears throat> if you're uh, even a, even a, a young winery, but that started off with somebody who threw a couple million dollars at the project to start off with to say, yeah, we're going to buy a bunch of oak barrels and figure out which one works. But if you're kind of starting like we did uh, with our own capital and kind of from scratch, um, you have to hit a point. Of, you have to hit a scale where you can afford to mess around yeah. with 225 <clears throat> liters. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, and that speaks to your – you know, uh, dedication to quality and the amount of different, you know, experiments you had mentioned, you know, in the nineties doing, uh, all those different experiments with the different yeasts and the different, to get to the best result. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's the level that you went to. Whereas I feel like, you know, the commercial, maybe somebody that had that money though, would still maybe be looking for just like the first commercially viable version right. of that. Like, and you just named off five different, you know, wood types that you would be experimenting with. So, like, your interest, if I'm hearing you correctly, which I love, is that, you know, it's not just to do the barrel aged meat. It's like you would literally be investing in figuring out the best barrel aged meat or the one that you, yeah. you know. So it's not just good enough to, like, just do a barrel aged mead. 
the reason why you're taking your time is because you have to work through that entire process. And, and that's cool. I mean, people would appreciate that. Well, I, I hope they would. I mean, that, that's really what's gotten us where we are. Our piloting, our piloting programs are, I think, as substantial as anybody else in the industry right now. We, we are doing it right now with Riesling. We bought Riesling juice this year and we're fermenting it with, with, uh, eight different yeasts and a, uh, and a spontaneous fermentation. So there will be nine different Rieslings that we're producing. The public won't taste most of them because we will we will sit down at the end of this and pick out the ones that we like, and then maybe three or four of those will go on tap in the tasting room, and we'll let people give us their feedback on which ones they like, and we'll also keep track of which ones we like. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to make a stupid decision, uh, I, I, and I've been able to follow my own conscience on a lot of this stuff so far, like the bottle I'm about to open right now. Um, uh, I'll, 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 I'll follow my own uh, uh, guide. I love my listen, listen to my own counsel is what the word I think people have said. And uh, but on the other hand, <clears throat> yeah, it took us it took us eleven batches of the statement to get that thing. Uh, kind of squared away, uh, and that was after I've made been making cherry meads for fifteen years. So um, it, it is something that we we don't take lightly. Um, w- w- these have my my name on them. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we we try and get it really really good before we let it out the door. So so I guess the question that I have then for that is like to, to what end? So you said you. The statement had eleven different iterations. How, how did eleven differ from six that differed from one? Sure. Um, okay. So so let's let's start at the start at the beginning, uh-huh. right? And, and we do a process that we call bracketing. And bracketing means we will start with, uh, and in, in in this instance, we started with uh, a, a given amount of of uh, honey, and we used uh, three different combinations of fruit. We used Balatons, we used Montmorency's, and then we used the combination of Balaton and Montmorency. And and uh, once we figured out, okay, well, what we really like is the Balatons, right? So that's three batches. Boom, we pick, out of that, we pick one. Now we're going to bracket again, and we're going to take the same number of of pounds of Montmorency that we used in the first, or pardon me, uh, same number of pounds of Balaton that we used in the first batch, and we're going to bracket the amount of honey. Right, so X number of pounds, X plus two, X plus four. Pick out which one of those we liked, right? And we we made our mind up on that. Excuse me. Now we're gonna now we're gonna dink with the amount of fruit that we're gonna add, so we know exactly how much honey we want and how much. And then we figure out with with a bracket of three how many how much fruit we want. So so now we're nine batches in. Uh, we did, we did one more batch, uh, just to, to, uh, kind of hone that in exactly. Um, and then we did one more batch to ensure that we could repeat what we did the last time. So that's how you get to 11 batches. And then, and now we're ready to start producing it commercially. And this gives kind of a window into why meat costs what it does. Right, like, or like in terms of like a, the cost of a per bottle cost, it's a sure. 
it's a 375 milliliter bottle, which is essentially half a bottle of wine. Right. Um, and, and there's there's a lot of research and development that goes into your mead specifically. I don't know the cost of other meads, but I know yours – you guys have a kind of a – I don't know. Would you say premium price? Oh, I would. Okay. I would. I will admit we have a premium price. And, and part of that is because uh, in the business plan when I wrote it, I said we're going to – uh, we're going to produce the meads that we want to make and charge what we have to charge to stay in business. Uh, we're not going to change the mead so that we can make it more cheaply and then do, you know, and then, and then essentially cheapen the product to in- increase our profit margin. We said, we'll just, we'll charge what we have to charge. Um, and and so they spend a lot of time in tank we don't push them there's a lot of there's a lot of labor involved there's a lot of um essentially opportunity costs <clears throat> in that you can produce these things by fermenting them quickly and then and then uh filtering them immediately and we don't do that we don't filter at all uh our our principle is we we go to uh, great links to figure out what we can put into the mead and and that's what people want to buy they want to buy what's in the mead and not what we've taken out so we don't filter our meads we may find occasionally when we reach the point where well, and here's an example right in front of us um, where where a mead's been has already been in the tank now for several months and is refusing to clear um, and then then at that point we may give it a light finding just to just to get some of those those uh, particulates out of there um, a little a little more quickly, but um, several of our meads have gone six to ten months uh, before they've gone to market. And the Heart of Darkness and Statement Reserve and Apple Reserve, the the ones that we do with the uh, with the estate fruit, um, the Apple Reserve goes two years between the time that it's made and the time that it's released, and uh, the Heart of Darkness is traditionally at least fifteen to eighteen months as well. So there's a lot of a lot of time. We're paying rent. <laughs> We're paying rent for the mead to sit in a corner. And so then, at what point you you said the the you've been open for five years? The, when did commercial viability become a become a thing for you? When did you make the decision that this is? A commercially viable business with the business principles that you've set forth. Well, I, I knew, <clears throat> I knew that meteries. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll take a little bit of credit for for helping the meat industry get underway. When I wrote the book, there were fourteen meteries in the United States that I was aware of, and at this point, there are more than four hundred. What, what what year did the book come out? Two thousand three. Two thousand three. Okay. Yeah, and that's called the Complete Mead Maker. Okay. Available on Amazon, I imagine. Yeah, yep. absolutely. All right. Um, and uh, yeah, C-O, it's spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T. If I can if I can digress for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, that, that spelling is, and you'll see that spelling in a bunch of books, the complete something or other. That's all, a, uh, that's all an homage to Isaac Walton, who wrote a book called The Complete Angler, which was pretty much the first how-to hobby book in English. And it was written... You know, 500 years ago, and started the, the the hobby book thing. It was about fly fishing, um, and I'm a, I'm a fly fisherman, so that's why the complete 
mead maker is named the complete mead maker and spelled c-o-m-p-l-e-a-t but uh getting back to the the industry yeah there were there weren't a whole lot of of uh meaderies at the time and i i I, you know i was hoping that the book would spark uh a hobby you know growth and that some out of that hobby growth would come more commercial meat makers that's how that's how it worked in in uh, craft beer the american home brewers association was was uh first thousands and then tens of thousands of members and out of those tens of thousands of members came all of the people who opened all the really cool breweries. Ken Grossman and Larry Bell and all these people, they were all, they were all home brewers. And uh, I thought that the same thing would hopefully happen with mead, that amateur mead makers would start opening commercial meaderies. And they did. And in fact, uh, Brad Dahlhofer, who opened Bee Nectar in Ferndale, uh, uh, came to me when we were um, when, when he was getting started and said, you know, would you consider doing a batch with us? And I said, sure, um, I'd be happy to. I, I really wanted him to succeed. I really wanted commercial meat to succeed. And so I said, yeah, um, but if I'm going to do a batch with you, the uh, the batch I want to do is the the Heart of Darkness. It's the best meat I make. And, and so we released two, I made, and he released two batches of that in 2009 and 2011 before we were even up and running. I, I knew that it would work. I mean, I knew that the, by the time Brad was getting started, I knew that the, you know, the, having a commercial meadery would, would uh, be viable. And I also knew that my meads were good enough to, to have, uh, you know, to find a home in people's cellars and in their, in their, uh, you know, wants and needs. So, uh, when I, uh, when I finally got my kids out of college, <laughs> I said, yeah, let's go ahead. And I, I really, what, what happened was I got the kids through college and I started saving money to open a meadery. And when I had saved enough to, to, uh, to get things going, I started talking to people. The initial plan had a couple of partners that I was going to work with. Um, they didn't, that, that didn't work out. I took my, uh, my business plan to the, to the Oakland County Small Business Administration and, uh, uh, a guy named Greg Doyle, who's a, who was brilliant and helped us out immensely uh read my business plan and i mean it was, it was funny I, I i called him one day i was kind of frustrated because one of my partners had just you know the whole thing had fallen apart and i was you know feeling bummed out uh and uh actually bob perry bob perry who runs re barbecue uh, rogue state barbecue yeah, yep yep right so bob comes over and we're, we're drinking and he says man you know if you're this bummed out about this whole thing going south you should call the small business administration they're helping me so I, I did. <laughs> so I called the Small Business Administration and I thought, yeah, th- this is whatever. You know, I was already dealing with some pretty cool people, I thought, even though the, the, the relationships had not come to fruition. Um, and I, I talked to Greg and I, I said, Greg, here's who I am and here's what I'm doing. He said, email me your, your business plan and your revenue projections and I'll, I'll try and call you in a couple of days. So I e- emailed him all this stuff and he called me back in an hour and 45 minutes <laughs> and said, wait, 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 you're coming in to talk to me. Uh, you don't need partners. <laughs> you, 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 you're the man. You come talk to me and we'll get you set up. And he, and I did and he did and. That's when it really, you know, that was 2012. And, uh, I went to, I went to the, you know, the 10 week course with them and, uh, uh, and ended, ended up getting referred by Greg to a bank. The bank was willing to loan us money and here we are. And so now you, you have your home on Nine Mile in Ferndale. Yes. And then have you, 
have you guys expanded since then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. We the 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 original location was nineteen hundred square feet. Uh-huh. It's uh was in a place called the that used to be called the Record Collector, right on on Nine Mile across from from what what at the time was local, and is is now Detroit Axe. Um, and we um we were doing everything there. We were having a tasting room and doing production and running the business operations out of that place. It was 1900 square feet. And there were times when we were just absolutely uh, stepping on each other's toes and, and, you know, bumping into each other's backs and uh, trying to do uh, tasting room service and bottling on the same day. It was horrible. It was just God awful. Um, And we knew we had to expand and people wanted more of our meat. Uh, we had we had started off with a tiny little production uh, pr- production setup, and expanded that to to a two thousand liter fermenter. But we knew we needed more than that, and uh, we eventually leased what was the Wide Awake Market uh, in Ferndale on uh, Livernois nine fourteen Livernois, and and that's where our production space is now. It's fifty two hundred square feet, and production has more than quadrupled since since we got started. So do you have like a um like a regular line of meats that are always in production or is it- we we don't I mean I say we don't we we have certain things that we try and keep in stock on a regular basis that's easier said than done uh, demand is high enough now so that stuff sells out before we've made the next batch um, so things like the statement and blackberry ginger um, those those can come and go before the next batch is done. And I think right now we're pretty close to sold out of blackberry. Um, we have a batch of Marionberry and another black back of uh, another batch of blackberry that are in good shape flavor wise, but they're not clear yet. So, um, we're kind of waiting for those to, to come around. So what's a typical commercial batch size versus the start at the five gallon now? Or sure. Here? Sure. Uh, we have, we have th- four production systems we have the original two tanks that were uh our system when we had uh when we got started in 2013 um and those those two tanks will do about 900 liters then we have two more systems each of which can can ferment uh, have the capacity for 2000 liters that doesn't mean you can ferment 2000 liters of of uh, mead in them because you start off with we start off with uh, in a, let's just take a batch that's going into the two thousand liter system. Um, we'll start off with a ton of fruit, literally two thousand pounds of fruit, Jeez. and then we add honey and water in there. There has to be room for that all to expand because when it when the fruit and the and the honey ferment produces CO two and that fruit cap floats. Uh, it gets saturated with with CO two and it rises up, and and uh, as as the CO two is expanded out, there has to be room above the fruit cap for the CO two to build up and be pushed out of the fermenter. So when it's all said and done, and we've you know let the the fruit cap settle and we've we've pumped the meat off from underneath, there can be twelve hundred to twelve hundred and fifty liters in that come out of that two thousand liter fermenter. Um, we also have a 3,700 liter fermenter and that one, that one can, with a really good, I mean, if we're really tight and it's, it's always, uh, 
that's always an adventure because if you overestimate how much fruit and honey you can put in there and then the expansion happens and the expansion reaches the lid, um, you can end up with a whopping mess, um, which, uh, <laughs> a former, a former employee used to describe as explosions. Um, I don't, I don't think of them explosions. I think of them as like overflows, but, uh, <laughs> they're both probably, uh, somewhat accurate. And, uh, and when we do that, uh, uh, everyone gets mad because it's a big cleanup. <laughs> that's a, that's a big cleanup. Uh, but anyways, uh, we can probably get 23 or 2400 liters out of a batch wow. that comes out of that tank. So what kind of honey are you using? No, uh, a variety of them. Yeah. Um, primarily, uh, and the, the, the honey that's in, uh, these two bottles, uh, the second bottle that we opened was, is a smile of fortune. It is a, uh, it is a mead that's made with, uh, Polish black currants, uh, Polish, uh, Lutowska cherries, uh, heritage cherries from our heritage, red raspberries, excuse me, from Chile and, uh, boysenberries from the Willamette Valley in, uh, in Oregon. And, uh, that and the heritage, uh, red raspberry mead were both made with California orange blossom honey. We love California. Um, most of the orange blossom honey that's floating around right now is from California because of the greening issue that they've had with, with, um, citrus production in, in Florida. Um, <clears throat> so California orange blossom, we buy from, uh, uh, broker who buys out a big beekeeper. The big beekeeper produces several semis full of, of this honey, but we can only afford to buy it one semi at a time. Uh, cause it's expensive to buy a semi load of honey, uh, <laughs> but we do. And, um, uh, so we, we let him store it and then we buy it from him a semi at a time. The third mead we're going to try is, uh, is, a uh, Heather mead. And that's from that, that mead it, is made with honey from Scotland. We tested a number of different honeys. Uh, we, we bought a, a bunch of different Heather honeys from both from Scotland and from uh, around Europe. There's also Heather honey produced in Spain and, and, uh, France. Uh, but we, we like the, the honey from Struan apiaries and that's the one that we bought. So, uh, we'll try that. Last week we had, um, Brian Peterson Roos from Bees in the Dion. And we were mm-hmm. talking talking to him about the local Detroit honey. Yeah. Is that something you've used at all in, in we we making? we sell it. We haven't used it yet. Uh there's a lot of variability with that honey. Uh-huh. And that's great. It's probably not a semi full of consistent Detroit exactly. honey, right? Exactly. I and mean, we, we, we when we buy honey, we buy it. We I mean when we use honey in a in a batch that that goes into that two thousand liter fermenter that I talked about, uh we can use two and a half drums of honey. And that's you know, 55 gallon drums. <laughs> That's a lot of honey. And most of the, most of the local producers right now, <clears throat> the, the local, uh, really high quality, cool producers are not making that much honey. Um, and if they are, they really need, and we, we want this to be, you know, there are some, there are some beekeepers who want to sell a lot of honey at a time because they are pollinators and they, and they produce a lot of honey and they need to sell a lot of honey, <clears throat> a lot of honey. On the other hand, there are a lot of local, uh, really cool hobbyist and, and or, um, low end professional, uh, operations where they're only supporting themselves and, and maybe they're a few family members or a couple of friends. Um, then in that instance, they need to sell that honey at retail to, to 
to get the money out of it that they need to support their operation, which is great. And we'll buy that honey and sell it in our tasting room. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, is it relatively easy to buy a little bit of honey and brew this? Like if, the, if someone were to buy your book. Sure, sure. And one of the best ways, to, if you want to, if you want to, uh, to buy enough honey to make batches of mead and without, without spending, you know, $6 on a, an eight ounce jar, um, go, go find the local beekeeping club. Uh, there will be guys there that are and, and men and women who are producing hundreds of pounds of honey a year and want to get rid of a few five gallon buckets. And that's what you're going to want. Um, get out there and, and meet those beekeepers, support them, take them a couple of bottles of mead and, and, uh, and then offer them a reasonable price for their honey. And yeah, you, you can get it at way less than, you know, the 10 or $12 a pound that you'd spend trying to buy in a little jar at a time. Are all meads, so the first two that we've uh, tried are 12.5 and 14%, I believe. Right. Um, is that, so relative to beer where that seems to be on the high end, is that a typical range for meads? Is it, um, is there, what is the range in terms of alcohol? There's a huge range. Uh, there are people that are producing meads in the 6 and 7% range. And those are, a lot of them are light and sparkling and refreshing and delicious. Um, you know, we, you know, sometimes I refer to those as lawnmower meads. <laughs> um, and, and those are, those are places like Bee Nectar and, and uh, St. Ambrose up in, in uh, uh, Frankfurt. Those places are, are making meads that are meant to be you know, quaffed, not, not intended to be laid down. They're meant to be put in your refrigerator and drunk on Thursday. Um, and, and those are great. Uh, there, the, like I said, there's, there's a huge range in mead, just like there is in wine. You know, there's Proseccos and, and heck there's, there's Bartles and James wine cooler. I don't know if there's still Bartles and James, but I know Seagram's is still making those things. Um, and, and you can get, you know, you can get kind of a, a wine for every occasion and you can get a mead for every occasion. So there isn't a typical there really, there's a, a whopping range. Or you found that maybe that these ones lent themselves to that? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm producing meads for my own tastes. Uh, that's, that's one of the things I learned from people like Larry Bell. Uh, Larry, Larry's often said, I'm, I'm making mead, or pardon me, I'm making beers that I love. And if I make a beer that I love and the rest of the world loves it, well, great. <laughs> um, and that's really been successful for him. He makes he, if he's if he's as if he's as discerning as we pretty much have come to know he is, if he likes it, chances are so are we, uh, and that's how I'm trying to approach the mead world. Um, I, I like those other meads; they're just not the kinds of things that I want to make uh, for myself. The other thing is, I really feel like there is a uh, there is a threshold of legitimacy that mead hasn't necessarily passed yet. Um, in in the in the fine wine world, people aren't looking at meads with the same level of respect and admiration that they look at a Domaine Romani Conti. Um, they don't have the same they don't have the same uh, gravitas yet. Um, but I feel like when they're done well, they can be as delicious as as any high quality beverage. I've I've done side by sides with a lot of really high quality wines. I've taken my wine I've taken my meads to to tastings where they were up against 
you know, extraordinary truck and baron house lazes and, 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 uh, Loire Chenin Blancs and, um, Sauterne. And I, I think they will hold their own in, in that kind of a, of a setting. And I want them to, I want them to do, I want, I want these meads to be compared with the finest wines, wines of the world on an objective basis. And I want them to be able to stand their ground. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. So in terms of people reviewing your, your, meads like in, in like the general kind of reviewing sense like an untapped or beer advocate or these sites you, you guys are very highly regarded when people visit is there some sense of like are they always blown away like do you do you talk to a lot of people like is it's it's pretty overwhelming like i, I think at one point you guys were like the highest rated brewery on untapped or something like that which is yeah, we, doesn't mean i mean not mean a ton but it means something it right? does it does and we've been and we've been there a couple of times. Uh, we're not the top. I don't think we're the top right now. I think we're number two. I, I don't check that on a daily basis, but uh, it is nice to know that we've been around for a while and we're not, we're not uh, number two with some tiny little number of ratings that, that don't, you know, that, that could be influenced up or down quickly. We're, we've got, you know, tens of thousands of ratings. Um, it, it, it is nice, and people are people are uh, pretty um, positively taken with our meads when they come in. Uh, one of the things that I'm proudest of is that uh, we've had a number of really discerning palates come in, and they've commented on the fact that they've tasted across our entire portfolio and have enjoyed everything. And that's that's a real honor to us because we're trying hard to make all these meads delicious. Um, and it's not, it's not easy to, to make 12 or 15 really delicious meads and have them all presentable at the same time. So I'm happy about that. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with that. I, I, we're, we're not, we're nothing right now. You know, we're a five-year-old meadery. Uh, there's Weinstefan, there's Schloss Valrads, there's, there's, incredible champagne producers and burgundy producers and there's there's uh there are there are stunning examples of fermented and distilled beverages around the world uh, that have been produced by their companies for hundreds of years until we're more than five years old with a few good products we're just trying right now we're just trying to keep our head afloat and and uh, keep making things that people like and what can people expect if they come to the tasting room? You said twelve to fifty. Is, is that a, is that about the normal sure, amount? Sure, to we try? All, we always try and keep some things on tap at the tasting room that are not available in stores. Um, right now, there are there are black heart. There's a there's a there's a, a keg of black heart there. That's a a, a a mead that we've got going. And there's there are a couple of other things that were experimentals. Um, and when we make, when we make something that we've, you know, as long as we've done our label approval with the TTB and done our recipe approval with the TTB and everything's above board, then we'll put that tap, you know, we'll put that meat on tap and let people enjoy it and, and we'll get feedback from them. Um, things that could potentially become a product need to, need to be vetted 
with, with the world. And that's how we get our feedback. So yeah, that's a good, I mean, if you want to come on in, that's one of the real enjoyable things about coming into the meadery is into the tasting room is that there are things there you can't get anywhere else. Have you been surprised with the feedback on one you really liked or really disliked that, that went the opposite way? Uh, yeah. Let me tell you this, the, that story. I don't know how much time we got left. Are we okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when, when we first, when we first got started, uh, before we'd made our black currant mead called Black Agnes, which has turned out to be uh, relatively well accepted mead. Um, we, we made we made two batches that were released the same weekend. I was thrilled. What happened was we, we made a, a blackberry mead, and in the earliest days we had three different fermenters going, and one of them ran a little bit hot and fermented out to complete dryness or near complete dryness. And since it had so much acidity in it, we, th- we decided we needed to do something to soften that up. So we put it through a malolactic fermentation like most – uh, like many red wines go through, and some whites. Um, we 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 did that, and and the mead rounded out considerably, and was very much like a classic red dry wine. Only it was done with blackberries. It was phenomenal with with uh, lamb and and uh, beef and any any good piece of roast meat, a sausage roll, <laughs> a bridey, uh, right? It was great. It was it was a really good meat. It was a really good meat. A bridey, you know, with that with that fat in the in the crust and 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 this that big attack of tannin. It was phenomenal. I thought this was the meat that was really going to set us up. Yeah, I thought this was with you know other than the heart of darkness. I thought this was possibly a meat that would really really take off, and that then that the wine world would accept, and. At the same time, we released Black Agnes, which was a black currant mead, which is just incredibly sweet. It's also, it's also the most acidic mead that we make. When we talk about the levels of acidity, there can be 40 to 50 grams of acidity per liter from red or from black currant juice, right? It's just crazy. So, it's sick. <laughs> um, you, you have to leave tremendous amounts of sugar with that much fruit or it's, it's not drinkable. So we did, we released them at the same time. And I thought this, the red, the, the, uh, pardon me, the black currant meat is too sweet. The, the, uh, this delicious dry meat is going to take right off. It took us eight months to sell through a tiny little batch of that dry black berry wow. meat. We sold out the black Agnes in about five days and we have not been able to keep it in stock ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Every time it comes out, it is just literally gone. We will put it on sale. They'll, people will line up down the block, and it's just gone. So, yeah, that was that was a complete miscalculation on my part. So where can people um, – you guys are at shramsmead.com? Shramsmead.com, and most of the stuff that's being released is being released online. Uh, you We can't ship yet, uh, but you can buy the bottles and, and, and pick them up in, in Detroit in, or at, the, at the tasting room at 327 West Nine Mile. Uh, in Ferndale, or you can get yourself a proxy if you're in the far flung parts of the world. Just uh, ask your friends who know someone in the Detroit area that can come and pick up your bottles for you. Um, and uh, yeah, shramsmead.com. The, the the tasting room is at 327 West Nine Mile uh, between between Woodward and Livernois in in uh, downtown Ferndale. Awesome, fashionable. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, thanks for being with us. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Until next time, dine well, friends.